Our reading this morning is from Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, this is, uh, this is God's story that he has brought us into. So uh, let's pray that we can understand it clearly. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that by it you speak to us outwardly and by your spirit you make it plain to us. So we pray that you would send your spirit to work, to illuminate it, so that we can hear your voice so that all your sheep would hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and respond. So we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, you hear the word joy a lot this time of year, don't you? comes at you hard. comes at you aggressive. Uh, be joyful. It's written on the windows. It's on your coffee cup. Joy, be joyful. Now, of course, the word rejoice is, a, is to actually celebrate. <laughs> be joyful is to tell you how to feel. Comes at you hard, right? And, and maybe, you know, Christmas season can be hard enough for different folks. Uh, a lot of times it's, it's a moment you take stock on what you've lost, and uh, maybe 2020 in particular is a poignant season uh, for a lot of different folks. So uh, to be joyful, maybe that doesn't land so well. But of course we talk about joy because in Luke 2, when Jesus was born, the shepherds were out in the fields and the angel showed up. And told them of good news of great joy. You know the story, right? Um, But the funny thing is, those shepherds went, and it says that they they, they went and they saw Jesus, and they they worshipped him, they praised him, they went and they left glorifying God, but it says they returned glorifying God, meaning they went back to the field, back to the dark and the smelly sheep, and, you know, I guess the grind the next day. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know what the, I don't know what the next day was for the shepherds, right? Uh, joy must mean something more than just how I feel today. So we're going to think this morning about what joy is, how we get joy, and why joy is important. So what joy is, 
how we get it, and why it's important. Now, this passage doesn't actually mention the word joy. Maybe you noticed that. Uh, But all throughout the text is joyful celebration. This is a this is a passage about celebrating what the Messiah is going to do, the anointed one is going to do. And you notice throughout, there's this long list of all these different things uh, that Messiah will bring in. There's good news proclaimed right at the beginning. Oh yeah, that's right, the angels mentioned that too, didn't they? Right, The good news of Jesus. There's good news, there's, there's a proclamation of liberty, of freedom of release for prisoners. There is comfort and care for the brokenhearted. All of these things are a picture of what it's going to be like when Messiah comes, when the Christ arrives. And there's this interesting turn of phrase right in verse verse 2, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of His vengeance. Did you notice that? I don't know if that, that... caught your ear, uh, but in Hebrew, those are parallel lines and meaning, and you see this in the Psalms a lot, they go together. They're, they're, they're a joined idea. Sometimes there's a contrast there. Sometimes it's, it's amplifying. It's saying it from a different angle, right? The same thing from a slightly different angle. I'm not sure which way you would call this, but you get two ideas that belong together, right? The year of the Lord's favor and the day of His vengeance. And Isaiah is almost certainly riffing on an idea that's throughout the prophets. It's, it shows up in Isaiah 13, it shows up in Isaiah 58. It is this idea of the day of the Lord. That, that, that phrase shows up throughout a bunch of the prophets, the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is usually a day of judgment. The, the main associations with it are not good, uh, at least if you find yourself on the losing end of judgment. But there are places where we see the flip side of it as well, right? Because it, it's, it's, it's the end of all things, right? It's the judgment day, which means it's also the day that God is showing up. So if you look at Joel 2, for example, who's a, you can look at that later. <laughs> um, it's, it, that whole chapter is about the day of the Lord, and a lot of it is judgment, but you get to the end And there's a passage that's quoted several times in the New Testament about God pouring out the Spirit on His people. So that the idea idea of the day of the Lord has two sides to it. And Isaiah is highlighting it for us right here. Except what Isaiah is doing is he's saying, yes, it's vengeance because this is a day in which people need to be freed. Right? There's real evil in the world that God's going to deal with. That is part of Him showing up. But he is disproportionately emphasizing the other side of that coin. Right? If judgment is like a day, then God's favor is like a year. See that? In fact, he probably even has in, in mind in the background Leviticus 25, the, uh, the idea that there is a Sabbath year. So every, you know, you know about the Sabbath, right? Every seven days is a day off. It's a holy day to the Lord. But Israel was supposed to have a Sabbath year every seventh year when the land was not worked. And uh, 
uh, well, there's debate about exactly how this would have worked. <laughs> they never actually practiced it in ancient Israel. If you look at the end of uh, Second Chronicles, it's part of what, how God tallies up the time of their exile. But uh, they were supposed to let the land lay fallow, but then every seventh, seventh year after that would be a year of jubilee, a year when uh, debt was forgiven, when those who had sold themselves into servitude were freed, when your land was actually returned to, an- to those who had ancestral rights. Again, Israel never practiced it. But that idea is an idea of hope that's out there, and it's, it's almost certainly here, the year of the Lord's favor when prisoners are set free, when those who are mourning receive comfort. And so the, this passage is infused with joy, the hope of joy. And we can see even in a cursory way up front how joy is related deeply to faith and to peace and to hope, these things we've been talking about all through Advent, right? Because joy is receiving what's been promised by faith. Joy is the hope realized, right? It's the experience of peace. These things are (laughs) all interconnected. So joy is this delight in what is promised that colors your whole situation. So joy is different than from happiness. Now, okay, etymologically in English, these words have been used different ways over time. The way Shakespeare uses it might be different than the way we use it. But the way that we usually talk about happiness, right, is pretty immediate. It's pretty visceral. It's, uh, it's, the, it's the feeling you have of whether you're enjoying this situation right now. Some of you might not be very happy right now. Listening to me preach, right? Like the, it's, it's that visceral experience. Joy is something deeper. It's something more profound. So happiness, ironically, is what Mary Kondo is talking about on that Netflix show when she, asks you if you should, she tells you you should pick something up and ask if it sparks joy. She's actually just talking about happiness, right? Sounds better saying spark joy. But that's what she's talking about, that, that feeling. Do you just get a visceral feeling about it? And, of course, if you ask somebody about their happiness, well, in 2020, I don't know a lot of people that are scoring real high on happiness. If you ask a parent who hasn't slept a full night in three months whether they're happy, it will not score very high. Happiness is all about your circumstances. I'm either happy right now or I'm not. Joy is something more profound. Paul, you may remember in in Philippians 4, from jail, (laughs) tells the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This is what he's writing from jail. Rejoice. Joy is, joy is a thing that gives you ballast. 
when the waves are coming from different directions, right? It is, it is a thing that buoys you up as the tide goes in and out. Joy is perspective. It is about realizing where you're going. What is, hap- what is really happening in your life despite the variations in your situation right now. Joy is about knowing what beautiful things lie ahead. What love compels it. So it's interesting, I think, then, that this passage comes up again in the Bible. It's quoted directly by Jesus. It happens in Luke 4, and it's right at the beginning of his ministry. So in Luke 3, he's baptized. And at the beginning of Luke 4, the Spirit inspires him to go out into the desert where he confronts Satan and is tempted. And then as soon as he gets back, he goes to the synagogue in his hometown, and they ask him to read. So he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and uh, there were no chapters or numbers then, so I don't know how long it took to move through the scroll. I don't know if it was the appointed reading that day by divine providence. I have no idea. But he reads this passage. And then he says it's fulfilled today. And instead of sparking joy, it sparks outrage. In fact, they try to kill him. They try to throw him off a cliff. I mean, why would this passage be an outrage? This is about all of the beautiful things that God is bringing into their lives, that he's promised to bring with Messiah. What have they missed? I think it might have something to do with the next question. How do we get joy? You see that the the task of the Messiah is written all throughout here. Uh, That word Messiah, I keep mentioning it, is the Hebrew word for the anointed one, right? the, The Greek word is Christ. It's a title. And there are three people in the Old Testament that are anointed, or three types of persons, prophet, priest, and king. So if you're around the church a lot, you hear that, those three. It's because that, those are the three offices that require anointing. And they work differently. Each of them is a little different, right? The prophet goes from God to speak to the people. The priest comforts the people and brings them into God's presence. And the king is to rule among the people to govern them as God desires. And you hear a mix of all that here, right? You hear the announcement from God, the prophetic, the announcement of the good news. You hear the comfort and care that's being offered, the priestly task. And you hear the justice realized, the kingly task. So Jesus, when he shows up, is saying, I am all these things. The Spirit is also there, too. Did you notice that? And this is what is interesting, is is all of the, everybody in Jesus' day would have known that Messiah would play a key role in the end of all things. 
before God returns. Because Messiah is always connected with that return of God. What they didn't expect was that God himself would show up and be Messiah. And it, it is interesting, there's, a, there's some fascinating Trinitarian stuff going on here, right? The, the spe- if, if we realize that Messiah is God, the Son of God, right, then the Spirit's at work. And we see this all throughout the Bible, that, that there is no one person of the Trinity who acts alone. That even when one of them is in the forefront of what God is doing, the other are always there. So that when Jesus, Jesus is always talking about doing the will of the Father, and he's empowered by the Spirit, even as this passage is talking about. And that, the Spirit keeps showing up in the, in the Gospels. It is, the Spirit, it is by the Spirit that Mary conceives, right? Jesus is baptized and the Spirit descends on him. He is, as we've already mentioned, led into the wilderness by the Spirit. He reads this passage about himself in Luke 4. He is raised by the Spirit. And when he departs, what does he do? He sends the Spirit to the church. So Jesus is never doing any of this. The Son is never doing any of this by himself. It always with the Father and the Spirit. And even when the Spirit comes, he is doing the will of the Son. In fact, his message is this, what the Son has accomplished so that we would glorify the Father. And they're always in concert in that way. It's a profound mystery, isn't it? So that all these so one of the things that Jesus is making clear about himself is that all of these promises, all of these beautiful things that God promises to deliver to Israel are really gifts of him. They are gifts of the Messiah. They are gifts of Jesus himself. Which means that when we talk about joy and having perspective that colors the rest of our lives, we are not talking about merely or only or finally all the benefits of knowing Jesus. We are talking about knowing him. You see the difference? There are lots of things that can sound attractive in the abstract about Christianity. But what, we, but what the gospel is constantly saying, what I hope we are saying <laughs> over and over and over again, is it's actually about knowing Jesus. And then all these other things are thrown in. If your goal is just not to feel guilty or ashamed or to have some sort of righteousness of your own. The truth is you'll never find it. You may come seeking those things, but those are really only gifts of enjoying Jesus. Enjoying what He did for us as the mediator of the new covenant, the one who came as both divine and human. Who can, who can actually resolve the tension between us and God because he is both us and God. Who gave his life 
for us. Who broke the power of sin and evil by rising from the dead. I mean, that thought that he gave himself for us is the thing that has powered the church for 2,000 years. It is a thought that we can't stop and think too often about. Because if someone gave their life for you, why wouldn't you want to be with that person forever? If someone gives that much, right, why wouldn't you want to be there, to be in their presence, to be with them? You see, the ultimate joy, the thing that really colors our whole situation, the thing that actually get, you know, gives us that ballast is Jesus himself. It is the joy of knowing him. And all of those other things are the benefits of knowing him. See, there are all kinds of shortcuts we have to joy. One of them is that we think we can change our situation. And here we display that we have confused happiness for joy. I'm not saying there aren't really difficult situations that you shouldn't change or get out of in life. There are some, for sure, right? Um, We've all had... We've all known people that we've been like, you've got to get out of that situation, right? That is horrible. Yet, there are also many of us, most of us, who want to run away from situations at times because we think the problem's with the situation. But we are bringing our own problems with ourselves no matter where we go. I used to work with college students, and, you know, they're... There was always that college student that you would know who would just think, like, if I just get with a different friend group. And it was sort of like hop from different organizations and, and it, you know, looking for a group that really cared well for them. And, you, you know, it didn't take long to realize you're the problem. I mean, I'm not saying that those other friends were all perfect, right? But, but there's something you want that no one can give you. You know, there are, there are folks who hop around from job to job to job. Again, there's a right time to leave a job, right? But there are folks that are just perpetually disappointed in every job that they have, and maybe that's because the job's not going to give, no job's going to give you what you want. Should we talk about church hopping? I'll leave it at that. All right. So one way we, one pursuit of joy that is a dead end is just changing your situation. Another is focusing on yourself. <laughs> now here, I mean, there's some truth to it, right? But this is, this is such kind of commonplace wisdom in the Western world, right? You need to take care of you. You need to put yourself first. You need to do all those other things. <sighs> And boy, there's something true to that, right? I mean, there are some, like, some of you are burned out because every hint of obligation you take on. And you're tired. 
Some of you have volunteered at this church for years and years and years, and you're tired. Right? I, like, there's a legitimate time to take that break. But, you see, the myth of Western society is that if you love yourself first, then you will love all these other people and all these other things well. And the truth is, everybody that I know that really uses a lot of that language about putting themselves first is the kind of person nobody else trusts. Because you're not a reliable friend. We don't even know if you're showing up to the party. Because if something else more interesting comes up, you'll probably do that. You see, the, the idea of self-care is not necessarily unbiblical, but to what end? This is important. If the end is merely that you will feel fulfilled, then the pressure is all on you. And to the degree that you just don't feel fulfilled today, oh, you've got to dig deeper. Maybe that's more time meditating. Maybe that's more time reading a book. Maybe it's more time that you need to spend on you. But the, see, the gospel says, actually, you were made to love God first and to love others. And so the goal of self-care is that you can actually love them better over the long run. See, you, you may need a break from something, okay? Like, Every parent needs a break, right, <laughs> from time to time. Every parent's got to get a, get a break. But you do that so that you can actually love your family well, right? Uh, so you can come up for a little air so that you have more to give. And it's the same way with our friendships and, you know, like maybe, you know, maybe that's you in the church, right? Like you need a little break. Great. <laughs> come up for air, but so that you can love others well, so that you can serve well over the long run. Another dead end is positive thinking. Uh, you know, I, the thing that positive thinking has going for it is this idea of perspective. And it's certainly true that, you know, <laughs> sometimes it's help, it helps if you see the glass is half full rather than half empty, right? If you see a, a challenge as an opportunity to do something different. I mean, these sorts of things can be fine, but, you know, what was that book that Oprah was pushing? The Secret? Was that, was that what it was? The, the, several years back, right? It was like you, you kind of pick this thing that you, you really want, and you just, if you focus on it, it will come to you. Uh, there's the Tony Robbins model. Um, of course, you know, who, the people that talk about these sorts of things are always celebrities. Uh, there's no soccer moms that they ever bring up to talk about these sorts of things. And, and the reason it's a problem is this. Not that a change of perspective can't be helpful. In fact, that's part of what we're saying joy really is, is a change of perspective. But it, first off, to the degree to which anybody else is involved in realizing what you want, it is out of your control to some degree, right? I mean, you may want to advance in your job, but there's others who are in charge, <laughs> and you have to work with them, and you, you, know, the, the, you have to build those relationships, and you can't control what they think of you. You can try to manipulate it. You can even try to do a good job and just put your best foot forward. Great, but you can't control it. 
And to the degree which it is in your hands to affect what you want, then the degree to which you fail to realize it is your fault. See, the the problem with positive thinking is it actually is loaded with guilt. Because if you think all you've got to do is desire the right thing and focus on it, know what you want and go after it, the degree to which it doesn't happen is the degree to which you're a failure. David Brooks in his his book, The Second Mountain, which is a really beautiful book, says this. He says, we can help create happiness, but we are seized by joy. We're pleased by happiness, but we are transformed by joy. He says that joy is getting a glimpse into the deeper and truer layer of reality. And I think he puts a pretty fine point on it. You see, what the Bible's offering, the kind of joy it's offering, is in receiving something that you never could have possibly achieved. That is the good news. That's what's worth celebrating. That's the kind of thing that can change your whole outlook on your situation in life, right? Is that you have been bought at a price, that you have been redeemed that you are being delivered from sin and evil. That you're not, it's not merely your circumstances that are going to change. In fact, that's, in some ways, that's the last thing that changes. Like, it's never going to be perfect until that final day. But where God begins His work is in your heart to make you the kind of person you always really wanted to be. To transform you. Now that's hard. (laughs) Sometimes a little messy. It's always a little messy. (laughs) But that's the difference, right? This is a joy that that is true joy. It is a receiving of something more profound than you ever could have dreamed. Which is why it's important. I guess as you get into verse 3 you might notice something that happens, right? He says, there's a thought that's cut off. The first line says, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, and there's no direct object. (laughs) To grant what? Give something? And then it breaks off. It's an incomplete thought. Instead, it breaks off into an image for several lines. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. That's the top of your head. Right? When you were mourning, you would, a, a symbol of, of mourning in the ancient world was to put ashes on your head. You don't have to get into all that, but why? But like, I'm not even sure I understand why, but, the, but that was part of the symbol, right? Instead, a headdress, which was a symbol of joy, celebration. It starts there. The, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, instead of dripping with the sorrow of what is lost, Instead of that, you receive gladness. 
kind of Gladys that's running down. And then instead of the garments of a faint spirit, a garment of praise. So the images of the whole person's appearance transformed. So that, and there are two goals here. And again, I think this is a flip side of the coin situation, right? So that you would be called oaks of righteousness, that God may be glorified. God may be glorified, right? So that God's goal in being glorified himself is to transform you. Now, I'm not saying that's everything about God's glorifying, but key to how he sees himself being glorified is transforming you by this joy into an oak of righteousness. An oak, that's another image of a, you know, something that stands up against a storm, right? The seasons come and go, right? The storms come and go. Some days it's sunny. Some days it's not, right? But the oak stands. <laughs> and the idea is so powerful, right? I mean, it, you know, in our confession, we say the chief end, the chief goal of life, right, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But those aren't two different things. <laughs> They're the same thing. To enjoy God is to glorify Him. And we glorify Him by enjoying Him. That's a profound thought. This is why joy is so important. Because you'll never realize what you were supposed to be all along. I mean, you know those who are being drained by grief, by mourning, and they are something less than they are meant to be. And maybe that's some of you this morning. I don't, I don't know what all is going on in everybody's life. But you were meant for joy. And I'm not saying you're wrong for mourning. If you've lost something, if you're going through something difficult, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying recognize that what God is doing is changing you from one who is stuck in perpetual sorrow and grief to one who is filled with joy so that no matter what the circumstances are, you know that you have hope. You know that your faith is not disappointed. You see, he is not bringing us from sorrow into happiness. He is not bringing us from sorrow into whatever it is we think we want or need in life. He is bringing us from sorrow into his freedom, his comfort, his care. That is why we need it. So what it looks like to be a joyful person may not be something obvious on the outside. I'm not saying that you're just the person that wears a smile, right? Though your heart is breaking. <laughs> That's not what it means to be joyful. I, there's, a, there's an image in The Return of the King. You know, Gandalf has uh, 
well, let's say he's come back from beyond. Uh, and he and one of the hobbits are looking out at the gathering darkness. The, a war is about to break. And Pippin the hobbit looks up at Gandalf. And this is how it's described. It says, In the wizard's face he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow. Though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing. See, what joy is, is about understanding who you are in Jesus. Joy is about understanding what God has for you, that His glory and your transformation are bound up together because he has sent his son to change you and me. To bear us up. To bring us into hope and happiness. Not a passing happiness, but an enduring one. Joy. That's what joy means. That's what it takes to find joy. And that's what is guaranteed by his body and his blood, by his resurrected body, is that he will not disappoint. So that one day, even as we in part see it, we will drink deeply of his love and bask in his light and share in his life uninterrupted. That strains, that's just, strains our imagination, doesn't it? That is a joy so divine it defeats your wildest dreams. And all of it is yours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to bring us joy. That's not the way we usually talk about it, I guess. But it is the joy set before him. It is the joy of delivering us that empowered Jesus to go to the cross. And it is that joy that gave Paul perspective, though he was in jail, though it would lead to his death, he could still rejoice. It is that joy that has powered the church for 2,000 years to think that you entered in, to think that you gave your life for us, to think that the thing that you thought would bring you the most glory was to give us joy in you. Teach us to rejoice, Lord. Give us that joy that never disappoints. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.